It is an understatement to say that we live in a time of change, of great change. Our physical environment and change in climate is evident uh, at local levels, and of course we hear about it more at the global level because we live in this uh, electronic age. The economic situation worldwide affects us all. We have many people <coughs> close to us and we ourselves have, each one of us have been affected by the economic situation in the world. The social and political landscape also. Even though many of us are more positive about the changes that have been made in uh, Washington and generally in the political landscape still, we are faced with so much change that it can be scary sometimes. So as we all know, change is a fact of life, and this is a fact, but how we deal with it is another area of our lives to take a look at. Because even if the change is for the better, we know that we go through difficulties in our own heart, just dealing with how things are different. So it's quite understandable that during this time of our lives we can feel anxious, we don't know what to do, we can feel agitated and fearful sometimes. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions, or sometimes they're known as the eight worldly vicissitudes of life. They're the ones I spoke of earlier this afternoon. Praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute. These are conditions that all of us have a story about from one side to another. Joy or sorrow, gain or loss, praise or blame, fame and disrepute. And we see it at all levels. I mean, even when someone in a level that's highlighted um, all over the world in the news and electronically, there's someone blaming and there's someone praising the same person for the same thing. Steve and I have that experience also in terms of um, offering the Dharma. Uh, there are... Um, Dharma talks that we give, and we get praise notes and blame notes, you know, for the same, the same particular thing that we said in a Dharma talk. Some people like, some people don't like, you know, and so we used to have a joke <coughs> among ourselves um, at the places where we taught, like bigger groups of people, where kind of they were allowed to <coughs> write notes. We don't allow that anymore. <laughs> we got smart. Um, because it is just too much up and down. You know, the, um, the praise notes would come, and we'd say, okay, this is the praise basket. And the blame notes would come, and this is the blame basket. And everybody has an opinion about the very same thing, about the very same person. Um, and the, the very same Dharma talk. How can we maintain a balance of staying attentive yet compassionate, not just to how others are feeling, but mostly, in a way, towards ourselves? We often forget our, to be compassionate towards ourselves. How can we stay open to these outer worldly conditions and the inner responses to them without being paralyzed? That's the big question in this era of change that we're living in. It's not easy to do that. What we're doing in a retreat such as this is we're learning to give ourselves permission to explore, to see what's going on inside of us. You hear uh, us asking you questions, and you hear other people, and even yourselves, talking about what's going on moment to moment. First this arose in your heart, then that. You saw this happen out outwardly, or the lunch didn't come on time, not necessarily here, or, you know, it's sunshine now, but oh, in a few days it's going to be cloudy or rainy, and 
we just react and respond to everything. That's not a quiet heart. But that's what happens. How can we accept ourselves in this changing reality and in our humanness? How can we just be okay with all of that goes on outside and all of that, go, that goes on inside? It doesn't mean that we're resigned to it or we say, well, it's how I am now and how I always will be. But it's more like knowing, well, these are the conditions that have come together in this moment. And uh, we're exploring that here. And that's a great thing that we're doing. It takes a lot of courage and humility To be mindful of our moment-to-moment experiences and to live with all the fluctuations that we see outwardly and inwardly, we need a lot of equanimity. And this is why it is so important to speak about this subject, to reflect on it within ourselves, to incline the mind there. As the Buddha said, what you reflect upon over and over again, to that your mind will incline. To that your mind will incline. So we need this quality of equanimity, which is the subject of this talk, to navigate the outer terrain of the world and the inner terrain. And the inner terrain, in a way, is the closest to us, and yet it's the farthest away. It's the least explored compared to the outer terrain. We're so pulled by things that are happening outside of us in the world. We're curious, of course. It's, uh, it magnetizes our attention, not just in terms of what's going on globally, but socially in our communities and in our families, too. We're pushed and pulled around by this, and yet we don't look as often as we could to what's happening inside of us in relationship to what's going on outside of us. Equanimity implies balance, but the subjective experience of equanimity is not just balance, but it is a spacious balance. And that is often a quality that we overlook in terms of equanimity that spaciousness, that bigness of our minds and our hearts. It's a big space when we experience it uh, within ourselves. It's a big space that can contain a lot. And eventually, it can contain everything. If we we just let our minds touch it and know that this is true too, this is part of life too, in the outer, world and the inner world, all the pleasure, all the pain, everything in between. But most of the time, with pleasure, we're just running after it. We're looking for the joy instead of just experiencing it. We're running away from the pain and the discomfort instead of just experiencing it. That's a lot different when we're running away or running towards which is aversion and attachment. That's really different than being just open and experiencing life as it is. There can be a lot of clarity in equanimity that we don't get when there's attachment and aversion because there's not this ignoring going on, this delusion going on. A lot of delusion accompanies attachment accompanies aversion, and the mind cannot see clearly. There's no clarity there. But with equanimity, there's a lot of clarity to be able to experience and know what's happening very directly, very intimately in the present moment, without flinching, without attaching if it's if it's pleasant, or looking for more of the same thing if it's pleasant. So, with that clarity, there can be understanding of what's going on. And not just understanding, but compassionate understanding. 
so that when we can understand with a compassionate heart, we can take action that's from that place. There's that phrase that we use, this is how it is, over and over again. Sometimes in the equanimity phrases, which I'll add a few of these, we say, this is how it is. Praise and blame arise and pass away in life. This is how it is. Gain and loss pass away, arise and pass away in life, and all of the others. These are all part of life. They come together out of conditions, out of outer conditions, out of karmic causes as well. And it's so big that it's mostly out of our control. I can't say totally because we do have great influence. We can't control what already happened. We can't control this moment because it's already forming and occurring. But we can have influence in the way of how we respond to this moment and how we respond to what has happened in the past. In this moment, which is also karma, it's not resultant karma, but it's the making of new karma. In this moment, in the making of new karma, in our response to whatever is happening, we're creating a new life for ourselves. We have the great influence and ability to create a life more and more free from reactivity, from uh, greed and hatred and ignoring or ignorance, ignoring what's going on. An African-American minister used the phrase, seeing the world with quiet eyes. And that has had, um, that's given me a lot of inspiration, seeing the world with quiet eyes. It described to me, those words described to me, what it felt like when there could be equanimity in my heart, in my mind. And whatever was going on, there would be this ability to contain it, to have space enough to contain it, to face it, just to be without it, without reacting with fear or aversion or I don't want to hear this or avoidance because it's too uncomfortable or attachment because I want it to be a different way in a situation or for me or for that person. Um, or attachment to my opinion of how I think it should be globally, environmentally, politically, on that level, etc. So when there is this kind of seeing the world with quiet eyes, there's this ability to receive what's going on uh, without reacting to it. Because when we know, and I've seen, of course, over and over again, that when I can receive what's going on without reacting to it, I'm not seeing through a lens of an unwholesome mental state of aversion or attachment or ignorance, delusion. It's seeing clearly so that things can be assessed clearly and the right response or the best response I can come up with in that moment can happen. So this is from the Reverend Howard Thurman, who wrote this uh, Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. This comes from his writing called Deep is the Hunger. So he writes, and it's a good question, how may one work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world? Without despair and fatigue, what are the resources for personal habilitation, rehabilitation, and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all its vicissitudes, cruelty, and joy, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Now, this question that he asks is something that, since I read this, I've really been trying to answer over and over again, not just intellectually, but with my life and investigating what it is uh, to live that way, to see the world with quiet eyes, to receive 
the world that way and then to uh, act in the world that way um, in the positions that we're in we hear um, human stories stories from human beings like all of you that could make your blood curdle and it's really really important for us to develop equanimity to be able to behold what's happening to be a witness to people's suffering and to not react to be able to take it in clearly enough so that the mind and heart can come up with some response that can be helpful this is so utterly important to people in our position and and many people who are in service positions I just know this one because we're close to it. So as I engage in the various facets of my life, I ask myself that question over and over again, being in this role sometimes, in the role of partner, of mother, of friends, to people who are going through tremendous ups and downs in their life. So. I look to see whether I'm living from an inner quietude and balance. Can I be a perpetrator of harmony and not harm? Uh, Can I support that in my life? So when I see that I'm drawing upon unhealthy habit patterns, reactivity, I know I have to stop. I have to put what I call the Dharma duct tape on my mouth and not say anything for a while. I know Steve um, appreciates that a lot, (laughs) I think. (laughs) When I'm honest with myself, both sides come up. Of course, you know, I'm not a fully liberated person. I'm doing the best I can. And I see both sides of that come up. I see the reactivity and I see the part where there's enough wisdom to maybe there's reactivity in my heart. I can feel what's going on in my heart even though I'm not reacting out there. I'm not throwing rocks into the pond out there. But I feel what's going on in my heart. But I can refrain from acting or saying because I know my own heart a lot of the times. Sometimes it's hard, but a lot of the times I can know when to refrain. So when we're truly honest, both sides do come up. We can't pretend. Fortunately, with mindfulness, that's how we know when something comes up in our hearts and we know this is an unwholesome mind state, then we refrain from taking action or saying the words we might that might have come out of our mouths. So in our training here, we're learning how to do that. We take the precepts of sila every morning, and by uh, repetition, we know that they come to us. I mean, after saying them uh, countless times for 30 years, when I know I'm going to harm someone or something, I remember a precept, oh no, musawada, don't say anything untruthful, you know, refrain from that, or uh, to refrain from harming through uh, taking something not given, even if it's small, or, you know, just anything that would harm. So we're learning how to do that. We're learning how to watch what's going on inwardly so we can tell what's happening and where to uh, stop. But if it's wholesome, where to continue, where to put it out into the world. And from that more balanced relationship with our inner world, we're able to face the outer world better. As all of us know who have meditated, facing our inner world takes a lot more courage than facing the outer world. And when we can build up that courage and that stamina, because this inner world is so intimate to us, it's so close, and we can't, once we start, we can't avoid it. We just have to stay open and keep opening. 
And once we can build up the courage to be here and build up the stamina and the forbearance and the patience, learn the equanimity and the compassion for here, then we have all of that strength to put out there. It's the relationship we have with our inner life that gives us that kind of strength. We don't learn it that deeply, that strongly, that well, by continually just facing the outer world and dealing with that, no matter what, how good a person we are and how much good we're doing in the world. So in an experiential way, equanimity can be defined as not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. We have influence over events, but most of our lives we don't have control because events are an event because they happened or they're happening now. Uh, we do have control over how we respond. And so this is how the practice of equanimity comes in. When we're not, uh, when we're reacting or rushing into a response or reaction out of compulsion, out of the need to get even or to uh, one-upmanship in our words, or in what we do or say, and we're not investigating what's going on inside of us, it usually turns out um, unhealthy, harmful, and even disastrous when we do that. But equanimity gives time for us to discern what's going on. Many people think, oh, if I'm equanimous, I'm not going to do anything at all. But that's so far from the truth. We will do something, of course, if it's necessary to do something. But with equanimity, we have a few moments, maybe. Or maybe we need to give ourselves more time than that, maybe a day or two or a year, to know what to do, how to respond to a situation. And most of the time I see with equanimity that there is a choice to not respond, to just be quiet and just to behold the situation, just bear witness to it and not have to do anything at all. We give ourselves that choice when there's equanimity and there's time to discern. One of our colleagues calls this quality the ability to stand in the center and to see all sides the ability to stand in the center and to see all sides. It's that kind of balance when you feel like you're standing in the center. So there's this quality of balance, of course, which many of us uh, connote to the uh, quality of equanimity. But when you can stand in the center and see all sides, it's also this quality of impartiality. When you hear, like for example, when you've got a couple of friends or friends on both sides of the fence regarding a certain subject matter, and you can hear one side and you can stand in the middle and hear the other side too, without leaning to, to one side or another, without taking sides. And then you can feel and know, well, you can see how this is true for this person or this group. And you can see how this is true for this person and this group. And you, with discernment, you can feel and be impartial to what's going on. You can be friends with both sides. And um, this is not easy to do, but from seeing both sides, you can also take some action if you need to, from having this sense of impartiality which is one of the qualities of equanimity. Not just balance, but impartiality. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls it this immeasurable impartiality. 
because in that regard, when he calls it the immeasurable impartiality, this is the quality that's given to metta practice. When equanimity is a big part of metta practice, you see that you're able to give metta to all those who um, have been harmed in this world. And also to all of those who have harmed others in this world. You're able to give metta to all sides. It's that kind of impartiality, that immeasurable impartiality. Another quality is patience. In India, equanimity is defined as seeing with patience. They use certain Indian words that mean uh, seeing with patience, which actually means equanimity. It's like when we see our children or our loved ones go through troubled times or whatever times they go through, and we see it with patience. Maybe with our children or our loved ones, they're going through a time of great joy and a time of where things are going well. All the children are well in the family and uh, and the schooling is going well and the income is covering everything and people are healthy and joyful in the family. And even that, you know, with some kind of Uh, not necessarily patience, but you know with understanding that this could change. This is happening now, but this could change. With patience, you see that maybe if they're hard, going through hard times, you see, okay, this is part of your journey. That has been a constant mantra for the various stages of life that my children have gone through. This is part of your journey. I can't control your journey. So seeing with patience and that impartiality, there's also steadiness. This is a great experience that we have. It's an experiential understanding with equanimity. One feels really, really steady, like a rock not stirred by the winds of life, the winds of change. In the Dhammapada, which is a collection of uh, selected verses by the Buddha, there's a metaphor of a rock that maintains the steadiness that the Buddha talks about in relationship to equanimity. And it's said that this steadiness is the function of a strong balance of mind. He says, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame, and all the others, gain or loss, fame and disrepute, joy or sorrow. And there are many times in our lives when we need to know not just this balance, not just this Uh, steadiness, but we feel it more, we know equanimity more by feeling uh, just really steady, spacious, all of those qualities. Sometimes the metaphor is of the sky, and it's used to describe what the heart and mind can feel like when it's so infinitely spacious that it can contain all the diversities and dualities of this world the injustices and the justices, the the way that things are good and the way that things aren't good, the way that women are revered in the world and the way that women are not, the way that children are starving and some are healthy and strong. This spaciousness that allows our hearts to contain it all and not to push it away out of fear or out of uh, saying it's not fair in a way that, um, of course it isn't fair, that's wise to see that it isn't fair, but sometimes we feel with a constricted heart that 
it isn't fair. It's said that genuine loving kindness has that spaciousness because true loving kindness is there and includes everyone, doesn't exclude any one of um, the pairs. Later, in at the end of the retreat, I'll um, we'll do some loving kindness that contains these pairs of opposites and see what happens when we have already done our equanimity practice. Can we be with um, those in the hell realms and those in the heaven realms? Can we send metta to all of those and not just prefer what is pleasant for our minds to go to? It's said that equanimity is the love that can encompass everything yet possess nothing, doesn't hold on. It can contain everything, but it doesn't have to be sticky about if it goes away, it goes away. So in a way you can say that it is this unconditional inclusivity. This is what equanimity renders to our love. It's what makes love unconditional. We see this quality of big-heartedness on the level of an individual person when we can care for someone so unconditionally that when they're going through a hard time there's something about our hearts that can be so spacious that it can still hold them in our hearts. We love them We say like this in metta, um, I offer you my love no matter what, no matter what happens to you, no matter how you are, even if you're not happy with me, I can offer you my love. That's a kind of uh, metta with uh, full equanimity. And we know that, each of us know that place in our hearts where it's been, it's hard to keep our hearts open to people who blame us or who um, say not nice things about us to others or our own children who talk back to us in very disrespectful ways sometimes. But still, we may know that that's not a good thing to do, but we may also keep them in our hearts at the same time. This is a story of uh, one of our teachers, Manindra. And um, some of you have heard this before, but it has a lot of, um, it's it's one of those good tunes that you can play over and over again, I think. This is how he he kept everybody in his heart. And he did it by example not just by saying words that he could do it. So we lived in a home in Hawaii in a little town called Hali'imaili. And somebody here used to live there. Such a small world. (laughs) And um, we lived in a home that people thought was haunted because it wasn't sold for a long time. And um, so that's one bit of the story. And one day, Manindra came and stayed with us in that home as he was recovering from some surgery. And while he was recovering, I had to leave him at home alone sometimes because I had a job and everybody was out doing things. And one day, uh, he called me and he said that a young man had come into the home and uh, had been looking around. And... um, He saw the young man and he was worried about this young man. Okay, so that's another bit. Let me tell you a little background about this young man. There was a man in the neighborhood, a young boy, who broke into people's homes and he would look into the medicine cabinets and get whatever drugs he could find. And that's what he did. He was pretty harmless to everybody else. Um, but he would break into their homes through windows and 
break the doors open and all of that. And I kind of knew that, but still I was a little concerned for Manindra when he called me at work and he told me, uh, somebody came in the house and I was uh, concerned about him and I knew right away it was this person called Lopes. That was his last name, Lopes. Lopez, or we in Portuguese we say Lopes. So I said, Manindraji, just stay there and I'll be right over. And so I went home and he told me what happened. Now Manindra is um, this short uh, Indian man with very shiny dark skin and a bald head and he wears white clothes all the time. So he told me that he heard something happening in the hallway and he came out from the uh, back bedroom and he saw a man walking in the hallway and apparently looking for the bathroom because all of the homes were kind of the same build. And uh, Mindu came out and said, huh, what can I, can I help you? And the man screamed. <laughs> here he was, here he saw this shiny dark fellow in white clothes looking like a ghost probably. He screamed and he said, ah! And Manin, he turned around and he started running out the door and he, he ran out the side door and towards the back where his bicycle was, Manindra said, and Manindra ran after him <laughs> saying, can I help you? Can I help you? You need help. You need help. Not afraid at all, just feeling compassionate and not closing down his heart, not responding with fear, really just saw that this person, indeed, he needed some help. And that was how Manindra was with people. He just kept his heart open all the time. I've seen him do that in other situations also, with people blaming him for something that was really uh, unworthy of that kind of blame. Um, he kept people in his heart. He could see the world with quiet eyes and a tranquil mind, not thrown off by events beyond his control, remain steady, able to offer his help. And this is um, something that isn't in the headlines of this world, you know, when when we're able to offer help and we're able to, when people are able to uh, respond with compassion or equanimity. I was really struck by what happened in the Amish community a few years ago. Do, do some of you remember that? Yes. So um, this came from actually a newspaper in the Midwest that somebody sent me a copy of. So there were all these grueling um, remarks and uh, pieces of information about what happened in, with this uh, awful incident where, and I'm reading now from, I'm reading part of this uh, article in a newspaper. Actually, the, the title was, What is this thing called equanimity? And so I'm going to read you parts of this. We often do not control events around us, but we do control our response. The tragedy in Pennsylvania in October of this year is an example. A tormented and out-of-balance man entered a one-room schoolhouse in the Amish community of Pennsylvania. There were 10 young girls affected. Five were killed, and others will live with physical and emotional wounds. Families have lost daughters. The crime is so heinous that it makes the response even more remarkable. Remarkable? Nay, unbelievable. The response of the Amish community must be noted, must be commented upon, and really should be the headlines of major newspapers. This should be the news. People respond to violence with loving kindness, compassion, and equanimity. That should be the headlines, they, this person says. 
With all the verbiage about warring religions these days, the Amish community has put into practice what every religion preaches. Love your enemies. Do good to those who harm you. It is one thing to refrain from responding in anger. It is even more newsworthy to reach out in love to those who have hurt, who, to those from whom the hurt came. It is always easy to blame, to proclaim our innocence, and to seek revenge or retribution, often thinly disguised as justice. Nothing will bring those little girls back. Can the deaths and the response of the, their community teach us something? Can these simple people hold up a mirror for us? Well, what those simple people did, apparently, is respond uh, and give love and attention to those who harmed the, their loved ones in their community. So she goes on to say, equanimity means not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control, be they wondrous or disastrous. It means not reacting out of passion or haste or a thirst to get even. It means staying true to the principles you believe in and consulting your heart and your brain before you act. It, meaning, it means treating everyone with equal regard. This isn't easy. It's very difficult. We have to practice. We have daily opportunities to practice because things do not always go as we desire. The response of the Amish community came naturally to them because it is the way they live their lives on a daily basis. Equanimity is their habit. And so they are truly bright candles shining forth and giving light to a world in darkness. So this is a prime example of how we respond, but we respond with compassion and love. It's not that we just stand there like we don't know what to do. Another way we feel this strength working within us is when we know how to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. And so this is one of the qualities of equanimity, to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. This is part of the balance, part of the uh, spaciousness. These extremes are the far enemy of equanimity and the near enemy of equanimity. The far enemy, it's called that because you can see it clearly from afar. And this far enemy is reactivity. I mentioned it earlier. There are two parts to reactivity. One part is reacting with ill will or with hatred, with aversion, with fear. This is not, I'm not talking about the healthy fear that keeps us safe, that keeps us in that place of survival where we're keeping ourselves surviving without harming others. I'm talking about the fear that closes us down or that strikes out because we can't think clearly. Another part of reactivity is greed, attachment to people, to the way we think it should be for people, those people close to us, even groups of people, how we think it should be for those people in Afghanistan or Iraq, Iran. Um, wanting things to be in a certain way, people to be in a certain way, attachment to our opinions. It's said that equanimity disarms the compulsion to react with greed or aversion. So there's this, not this healthy impulse, but this compulsion to react. And that's out of strong habit patterns, where one of um, my friends and my students called it the cow path of the mind. You know, it's just that place that's so deeply grooved that that's where our mind falls, that, and from there comes the reactivity. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this kind of disarmament, that dis 
equanimity disarms this compulsion. He calls this the true disarmament because it's the inner disarmament. When we become familiar with this inner terrain through mindfulness, then we know the terrain of aversion and attachment and delusion in our minds and hearts. We know where the tendencies are. We can see them coming. We can almost feel them before they arrive and affect our body and our mind. We feel the heat or the sign of it. It feels like heat or closed downness, a tightness somewhere. We feel maybe the stickiness of it if it's attachment, the heat of it if it's aversion, the bumpiness of it maybe if it's impatience like that. And when we feel it coming, we have a chance to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. I remember once again with Manindra at this very same time when he was staying at the house, he was uh, helping me in the kitchen. I wasn't such a good cook of Indian foods. I wish we had the cook around that cooked that wonderful meal the other day to help me when I was trying to feed Manindra. And he was in the kitchen showing me about spices, and I felt that he got a little bit impatient with me. I could see it in his face and hear it in his voice and about doing this or doing that with how I was handling the, the cooking. And I said, Manindraji, uh, do you, is there impatience? Is there anger? Is there something going on with you? And he said, first of all, he said, oh yes, there is anger. He said, uh, but anger is not me, is not mine. <laughs> It wasn't that he was not owning up to it. It was more like he really could see the selfless quality of it, you know, that coming up. And he said, but, you know, when things like that arise, there's a signal, there's a sign in the mind or in the heart that it's coming. There's a sign in the body that you you feel something in the body before it comes. So you don't have to act it out, he was saying. But then I said, yeah, but I could see it on your face sometimes, you know. (laughs) But you don't have to act it out. You can feel it coming on, and you can just keep quiet. Um, People, and let go. You know, let, you might not let go because you still feel it in there, but you let go of letting it come out of your mouth. Of, you let go of, you know, slamming the door or something like that. So resting the mind before it falls into such extreme that you know, it comes out in a way that is harmful and causes disharmony. I read from Mother Teresa of Calcutta a prayer. Um, this was a prayer of hers. And it struck me that she was so aware of her inner world her desires and her fears, you know, these extremes of our life that we feel so intimately within us. And in her own Catholic tradition, uh, she asked for help around these pitfalls of greed and, and fear. So this is her prayer. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being suspected, from the fear of being ridiculed. I love her humanness, and I'm struck by her humility and her ability to just know her inner life so well 
that she could see all of this and hopefully not get caught in it so much all the time. When our hearts and minds are so clear like that, one of the qualities of equanimity is that kind of stillness of mind, that kind of calmness of mind that allows one to see clearly what's going on inside so we're not caught by it. It allows the ability to notice honestly what's happening. Not only to notice the outer events clearly, but to notice the inner events in response to the outer events. When we can do that, then when we know ourselves well, then when we act in the world, we can act when we know there is an absence of unwholesomeness within us and there is a presence of wholesomeness. We can act upon that wholesomeness. Then our words and deeds have a powerful healing and nourishing effect in the world. Otherwise, when we just react, and we don't know what's going on inside, then we may be doing something that we think is powerful and helpful, but really there are ripples of what's going on from within us. I've told this story quite a few times, maybe you have heard about when the Dalai Lama was approached by someone who was greatly affected by what was going on in his motherland of Tibet and wanted to really fight for um, the rights of the people of Tibet. And the Dalai Lama advised him, no, wait, I'm just paraphrasing now, wait until your heart has cooled off, until you have more balance, and then act from that place, but not from this place of fire. There can be the fire of energy but it doesn't have to be the fire of anger. That's different. There can be this energetic enthusiasm to do something good and to do it, not just to have the intention. We can have that without anger. The Dalai Lama says, it's in that state of mind you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. But when, when something has happened outwardly and um, we have already reacted inwardly, I have seen that we have a very important second chance because maybe we've already reacted to the situation or maybe on the outward level we are fine with the situation, but inwardly we're still kind of seething there's something happening inwardly that we really haven't dealt with, that we really haven't come to terms with, that we're really not balanced around inwardly. Not too long ago, I was having a conversation with someone close to me, and uh, the temperatures got heated, and emotions um, you know, were flying about. And each of us was trying to make our case about a certain situation. And we're not getting anywhere with clarity. This isn't Steve, by the way. (laughs) So uh, I don't tell stories like that about him, or else I get in trouble. (laughs) Unless I have his permission. Anyway, with this particular person who is very dear to me and have a lot of respect for, I noticed how strongly this person felt about the subject. So there was this sense of, oh, you know, with, with some degree of calmness and balance and some degree, not totally, to be honest, but I, I thought to myself, oh, this person has a very strong... Um, stance about this situation, about this, um, uh, what's happening here. And so this 
ability to say, oh yes, this is how it is for this person. In a way, that's what I said. This is how it is for this person. She feels very um, fired up about what's going on. So, okay, that brought a little more balance to the situation. But then I looked into my own heart and I felt, ooh, you know, I could be, I could understand what's going on out there in a way. Uh, of course, she feels heated up about this because that's what's happening. But inside I felt like, oh, frustrated and a little bit of irritation, anger coming on, wanting to have my point of view understood, you know, both sides, um, attachment and aversion. So with enough kind of balance there to see that, okay, this is how it is in my own heart. This is what's going on inside here. And just coming to terms with that, I was able to say, okay, saying this out loud to this person, you know, I'm not clear enough right now to give you to respond to this. I think I need to take some time. I don't feel very clear. To which she said, right, you don't seem very clear to me right now. (laughs) So it was like, oh no, you know, it's like our friend said in that letter, I wanted to lash out, you know. (laughs) I know how I can say that. Um, uh, But I didn't, you know. it took time, you know, it takes time to calm down inside and then to, to have the, the right atmosphere for discussions. Okay, so that's one way. I want to get to the near enemy before I get too long in the evening, close to the end now. So that's one extreme, the, the far enemies, reactivity, uh, there's two of them attachment and aversion. Another extreme is the near enemy and it's called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity and people get this confused with equanimity when it's really not. It's called indifference or apathy. It's kind of a distancing from the situation and sometimes from ourselves. Sometimes it can be a cold distancing it can feel like an aloofness, like, yeah, I'm really, I'm cool about this, but you're really not cool about it. You can feel like there's an emotional emptiness, and some people even feel, and they say, a callousness. That, that's the words, word that was given to me by someone else, a callousness. Um, not really connected with oneself not really connected out there. And maybe sometimes it's because we're not ready to open that place up in ourselves. Um, Sometimes that's wise, too. But anyway, this is called the near enemy, indifference, apathy. And um, one year, I was trying to remember a place where I felt this, so I could give an example. One year, um, it was the year one of my daughters graduated from high school, and I made, I arranged to have this dinner with the family members and some close friends to the family, just a few, and even our local Tibetan Lama who was very close to the family and his translators. So I arranged to have this dinner at the Chinese restaurant And my daughter said, after the graduation, she said, Mom, I have a party to go to. I got to just step in. And after that, I'll be right there. But she never arrived. And I, during that time, I kept my cool, you know, and I was gracious to every, and I, and I really understood on one level. And I could say, well, you know, that's, she's so excited about graduating and she's got all these wonderful parties. And if she doesn't show up, it's kind of hard, peer pressure and all that. And so in a way, I kind of understood. And I stayed like, 
I probably stayed a hundred miles away from what I really felt from that because I had to keep my cool. And so I just said, well, she's not here, but we can celebrate anyway, you know. And so um, for years, I kept my cool on that outer level, and I felt, I felt like I was equanimous, but in looking back, I really felt like I had to keep a distance because I was so hurt inside. And I didn't realize how hurt I was until years later when my daughter and I were talking and here she was now in her 30s and we were talking about it and then she was you know 17 going on 18 and we were talking about it and I really felt hurt and I started to cry and I said that really hurt me and I I never was in touch with that feeling before and um, it took me a long time to get in touch with that. It was like there was a distancing from my feelings. And it felt so wonderful to just get in touch with that, to feel that, and to have some spaciousness to just contain it, to hold it. It was kind of like the outside the container of my heart for a long time. So there's more balance around it now because I, could, I felt it. And I could say, yes, that's how it was. You didn't come to that dinner. And that's how it was and is in my heart. You know, there was a, a hurtness there. There was a sadness there. So that's why it's important to see both sides, the outer and the inner, and that's why I'm doing the exercises in this way. Equanimity has enormous strength in dealing with our daily life, as, as in the examples I've been showing you, hopefully to hook up, to connect with how it is in your own life, similar experiences that you have had. But where it has the most tremendous strength is in the deepening of our spiritual life, the opening to the insights that we come upon in our spiritual life that we need to open to in order to um, open to the truth of how it is, open to reality, the deeper realities. Equanimity is called the doorway to that ultimate peace, the doorway to the unconditioned, the doorway to Nibbana. The Buddha called it abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without attachment, without ill will, free from all of that. It's equanimity which supports mindfulness in this non-preferential awareness so that whatever arises, there's no preference that it be um, pleasant or unpleasant. It's just what it is in that moment. No matter what arises, there's not an attachment to the pleasantness nor uh, an aversion to the unpleasantness. Anything can arise. The whole truth can be seen. There's a neutrality, an even-mindedness with everything that arises moment to moment in this inner world and deepens our spiritual life. We come to see more and more that there's really nothing to get so elated about that we can't see clearly, nor there is nothing to get so deflated about that we can't see clearly. So when there's no ripples in the mind, there's this complete calm clarity where one can understand and experience the true nature of life. So it's in this deep practice of meditation with this evenness of mind that the gate to liberation is easily crossed over through I'd like to end with this um, 
from the third Zen patriarch. The great way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. So just as a sideline, yes, there are preferences, but not attachment to them. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. Cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. Because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things and all errors will disappear by themselves. So let's sit for a moment. <clears throat> 